This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's episode 69 of the Equalizer podcast. My name is Dan Lawletta. I've got Ray Curran with me tonight as the Equalizer podcast team little R&R after the World Cup. We've got Claire and John and commute back from the Chicago Red Stars game where the Red Stars set a franchise markup with over 17,000 people and a much-needed win over the North Carolina Courage. Earlier in the weekend, wild finish in Utah with the Utah Royals and Portland Thorns playing to a 2-2 draw. Orlando ended Sky Blue's first winning streak in a year and a half with a one nothing win on Saturday, and also Houston came from behind, beat Washington 2-1. to Jane Campbell saved a penalty there at the end to preserve that 2-1 to win. Seems like Jane Campbell does that quite often. Uh, Ray, haven't had you on in a while. I uh, hope you're doing well. Um, yep. Just what comes to mind? You know, we're, this is the first week with the national team players back. Uh, you know, what comes to mind immediately when we're talking state of the NWSL in terms of on the field right now? Just happy to come off the bench for the team, by the way. Um, It's interesting. There was somebody that watches every week and then you go to, you know, all the national team players are back and it's great to see, you know, the crowds, obviously, but you you can't help but, you know, spare a thought for some of the players that we've seen now week after week and now are not playing. And that was one thought that crossed my mind. Somebody like Kristen Hamilton, for instance, who just lit it up while, you know, but some stuck around in the same game. You had Sarah Gordon, who's done a tremendous job, you know, at center back for Chicago. And you probably wouldn't have said that. At least I wouldn't have a year ago this time. So it's interesting, I think, this week for me to see who stuck in the starting lineups. And it's fluid, too. I'm sure things will change and who did not as far as the replacement players for the World Cup players. I think it was also evident that a team like Portland Thorns, and you don't know why necessarily certain players started and certain players didn't, but the Thorns certainly took advantage of the fact that they're in a pretty advantageous position in the table because they were able to sit Tobin Heath and they were able to sit Emily Sonnet. So, you know, I thought in, you know, in that case, that was, you know, I thought the Red Stars, even though they're not far behind in the table, I thought the Red Stars needed, they were a little bit more desperate to get and Julie Ertz back into the lineup. Yeah. And they were at home in front of their big crowd, which, you know, plays a little bit into it too, I think. But yeah, you're right. You look at the table, though, it's very tight, you know, from, you know, one to six or seven. It's very tight. Portland, I don't think they'll do it, but if they did slip up and lose a few games, you know, they could be in playoff trouble. And and it's going to be a tough call for a lot of these coaches, Mark Parsons included. How far do you push your players? You know, have some midweek games coming up on Wednesday. You're going to have some international friendlies. You're going to have a lot of soccer coming up still. How hard do you push now? And I think that's a tough call, Dan, is that, you know, you obviously need to get in the playoffs, but how hard do you have to push to get in the playoffs? That's a, it's a tough call for these coaches right now. And I know you followed this from the start in 2013. I don't recall a table ever being quite like this. I felt like by this time, almost every other season, maybe with the exception of when Orlando made the run two years ago, and maybe the four seed here and there, when maybe the Spirit the one year when they beat out Chicago for the four seed, 
feel like you kind of know what what was going to happen by this time. And I think it's literally wide open. I think four teams could put in a legitimate claim for the Shield. And probably, maybe it's a stretch, but I think you can go down to the dash and everybody out there at least should have the right to believe that yeah, they can get in the playoffs if things go well. Yeah, I mean, pre-North Carolina Courage, you did have some tight races at the top for the Shield. We had the case where... You know, teams didn't really want the shield. We had that whole controversy a couple right. years ago. Um, so, I, but it, again, from one to six or through the dash, so one through seven, you know, Houston had a big one on the road this week too. So it's tight. Washington is now winless in five and hasn't won in three. And, you know, now they have the World Cup players back, but they were doing well without them. So it's a tough call to know. You know, the top three teams I had from the beginning are now one, two, three, for better or for worse. Portland, North Carolina, Chicago. Now, Chicago is only ahead of, you know, Rain FC due to goal scored. But still, those are the top three teams in my mind in the league. But again, you know, we have 11 games left. How do they weigh? I still think the Courage will be fine. And I think the Thorns will be fine. Um, and, you know, as long as Sam Kerr's healthy, probably the Red Stars will be fine, too. So it leaves us in that same place where, you know, who's going to get the fourth spot. But again, you know, it doesn't, it's not, as you've seen this week, it's not in the realm of possibility that one of those three teams would miss the playoffs. But if I had to put my money on it right now, I would put, you know, my money on those three teams being in. Well, let me read the table off for anybody who is listening and isn't familiar with it. Thorns at 23 points, Courage 22, Red Stars on 20, the Rainer on 20. And as you mentioned, they're tied on goal difference. Red Stars lead by total goals. But the Rain have a match in hand. The Spirit are on 18 points, so they're two behind Red Stars and Rain. They also have a game in hand on the Red Stars. Royals also a game in hand. Also on 18 points. Dash do not have a game in hand there at 16. And then Orlando at 11. And Sky Blue at 8. And I think you can write those two teams off. But here's what concerns me about the Thorns that has not been a concern for many years. You go back to that wild draw with the Red Stars earlier in the season. They took the lead with like a minute to go. And they allowed the Red Stars to equalize. This past weekend, they took the lead Friday night. 87th minute, I think. They allowed the Royals with Rachel Corsi, of all people, to equalize. And the week before that, they pulled out the dramatic win over Orlando, but they were 3-1 up on the Pride and allowed the Pride to equalize in the 90th minute before they scored in stoppage time. Prior to this season, the rain under Mark Parsons had never allowed a goal as late as the 90th minute that changed the result of a match. I see some holes in that defense. Sonnet didn't play till late the other night. I don't think Menges has been the same since she's missed the start of the last two seasons with a bit of a knee injury. I've got my Carpenter didn't look great, by the way. If you uh, remember, they she came out of that Friday game and they flashed her at the end of the game. She didn't yeah. seem like she was walking around talking to her teammates. Um, I I see some some holes in the back of that defense, and that that concerns me. What do you think? Well, it was an interesting tactical battle uh, Friday night because uh, Mark Parsons came out in what was a three-five-two basically and trying to get Ellie Carpenter forward which worked for about the first 20, 25 minutes until Laura Harvey figured out that, well, if I stick press on that side, she'll go to town, and that's exactly what happened. You know, and, you know, once Kristen Press woke up, she Kristen Press was not really visible on the match for the first 35, 40 minutes, but then all of a sudden she gets that goal, which hopefully you've seen by now. If you haven't, you should. Um, you know, and that tied up the game. That seemed to free up Press, who was pretty dominant from there on out. And Utah has not been able to score this season. They had eight goals all season, and maybe that's what Parsons was thinking because Carpenter is very good going forward. I think she does well, but then it, it, you know, that's, that's what all coaches look at. You know, if you go forward with enough people, it opens it up at the other end. And like you said, they gave up a goal, you know, late to a team that had up to that point scored nine goals all season. That's a little bit, 
you know, worrying. And the fact that they got, you know, on the stat sheet, they only had two shots on goal in the entire game, five shots, period. You know, it's a little bit worrying against a team, you know, in Utah. And Utah was at home and they had their whole team back. But at the same time, you know, they had not been playing stellar. They've been kind of scraping along up to that point. Uh, what did you make of the Red Stars uh, being able to get a win? I feel like the Red Stars throughout their entire history, when it looks like they're going to start to dominate, they'll lose a bad game. And then when it looks like they might be ready to fall off and not be very good, then they win a big game. And they've had pretty good success against the Courage over the years yeah. that the Courage have been dominant. Yeah, I think I'm going to agree with that, too. I think, you know, I think there's two two sides to it. I think it is a huge win for them, obviously, in the standings, as you said, in the table you know, to get those three points is massive in the playoff race. But I think at the same time, I think they were a little bit fortunate. They gave up a bunch of chances in North Carolina as they get against a lot of people. Listen, they had some really big saves in the first half to keep them kind of in it. And then from there, you know, they kind of took over or didn't say took over, but they did enough to win the game. But they could have easily been down a couple goals at that point, too. But it, that being said, it's still a huge win. Those three points, you know, should push them forward. I, I did look up in the stats, by the way, Sam Kerr, that's her 10th goal of the year. And Yuki Nagasato has three, and I believe Michelle Vasconcelos has two. And obviously, she's out for the year now. But nobody else has more than one. So they'd like a little more diversity in their scoring. But if you have Sam Kerr, sometimes you can get away with that. Well, you know, when Kerr was um, gone and they went three straight games without her and they didn't score in any of them, and then she came back and kind of rescued them, uh, I thought that was a bad sign for them. I thought when she first got there last year, she was a little bit – um, shall I say, too deferential and then kind of figured out toward the end of the season that, hey, I can play within the confines of a team game and still score a ton of goals and did that. But you're right. They need some. They need more scoring. Their defense hasn't been great, and they need more players to score. It's not bad to rely on the greatest goal scorer on the planet at the moment to win yeah. games for you, but you've got to figure out a way to win when she's not playing at the top of her game. Yeah, and, you know, it, we'll see how it goes. I mean, sometimes, you know, I mean, if she's going to score one or two goals a game, she they can go that way. But I don't think that's sustainable for the last 11 games of the season. Is her defense good enough? I, You know, I think so. I mean, I, again, this is uh, – whenever they play North Carolina, I point out that it's just a bad matchup for them. And I, and I mentioned Sarah Gordon because that's not somebody you would have expected to see at center back. It moved actually Tierna Davidson – to an outside back spot. That's something Rory Dames has seen. You know, he, he, I'm sure he did not want to break up that pairing that he's gone with forever of her, of Gordon and Katie Naughton. And I think it had a decent success. But again, like I said, you still had Lynn Williams in behind at least a couple times trying, uh, you know, if she finishes those, then you're talking about how bad the defense played. But and then, as it was, a listener made the saves and they got, you know, they got three points. All right, one more for you before we end the segment. Washington Spirit, you mentioned that they are now winless in five. Could have stolen a point with a late PK, but Jane Campbell, who, um, like her or not, she is pretty good, I guess, at stopping these penalties because I think it's too many that she's saved now to make it a complete coincidence. Uh, I, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that the Spirit have the nucleus to be a really good team. They need to figure out whether, how to get Lavelle and Pugh in there because Pugh hasn't been effective for them in a – over a year Lavelle really last year never kind of got into the flow and the whole team was a mess at that point anyway um so I don't know if they're if the wheels are coming off or if they just were very lucky early on and caught some teams at bad moments got a lot of talent though but I would not you know they're fifth now my money would be on them not being back in the top four the rest of the season but like I said framework and nucleus are there 
Yeah, it's a tough one because they are very young, um, especially the two players that were really carrying them, in my mind, in the, the World Cup period were Andy Sullivan and Sam Staub, the rookie, who had a tremendous start to her career at center back. They've kind of, you know, dropped off. Their quality has dropped off a little bit, and I think that's shown a little bit in the results as well. You know, but again, it, it's a young team. To get, what You're putting a lot of pressure on young, you know, I don't know their ages. I don't have their ages in front of me, but Sullivan and Staub are both young players. You know, just out of college, you have a lot of pressure on them. To, can they have find? Can Mallory Pugh or in Roseville make the difference? We know talent-wise they can, but last year, you know, either they were injured or weren't playing or weren't effective. So that's going to be the key, I think. And then it's a lot of pressure on two more young players and Lavelle and Pugh to step up. So they think, like you said, the talent's there. I think they can do it, but it, it's a lot of pressure on a very young team. And I lied. Last one, Rain FC. On 20 points, so that's with a match in hand. So if they were to win that match, they'd be right up there with Portland, who they kind of surprised uh, a couple days before the World Cup final. So they're right in it, and they didn't play this weekend. And while they were on the bye week, Vlako Andonovsky reshuffled a lot of the roster. He brought in Rosie White. He traded uh, Elise Kellen Knight, which was, I thought, odd because she had, you know, there was so much effort and energy put into her getting there. Uh, he made another signing or two, um, Rebecca Quinn, who I think may, you know, has a real license to improve after being part of that messy Washington team mm-hmm. last season. But I can't get past the fact that it's going to be a tough road without Jess Fishlock in the midfield. Yeah, and she's playing so well. And, you know, and obviously, you know, Great Britain's going to be in the Olympics next year. Hopefully she can recover for that because she was, you know, she looked like she was about three steps ahead of everybody when the World Cup players weren't there. And, you know, and also, you get, you know, Megan Rapinoe is going to play a huge key coming back. And how much does she have in the tank, you know, coming off that long World Cup where she played pretty much every minute over there except for the one game that she was out? Um, you know, how much does she have in the tank going forward? And they're going to need every bit of it to get into this playoff race. And with a whole new team, I mean, we, you know, I think we agree Vladko Andonovsky is a great coach, but can he meld basically a new team together, you know, at this point in the season? I mean, they've done it with defense as well. And, and you know, he's put together a very good defense led by, you know, the, the players that they have there. But I think they're going to need some goals and where they're going to come from. I don't know. I think we can agree, um, talking about Vlako, that as good as they can be is as good as they will be. They'll be, you know, they'll get better between now and the end of the season. Will it be enough? I'm not sure. I, I just, I, you know, I fish, I fishlock is such a good box to box midfielder. I just think that's a really difficult uh, one to overcome. Yeah, and well, shout out to Casey Murphy too, who was another one of the stars in the, the World Cup period as well, who was tremendous in goal for for Rain FC, and they'll probably lean on her as well. I think. You know, if you had to give me a vote right now who the best goalkeeper in the league is so far, I think it's her. So we'll see how she does going forward with the World Cup players back. Yeah, I think it's her, maybe Aubrey Bledsoe, and a great signing because I think they signed her to be the backup, maybe the third string once the World Cup ended. All of a sudden, Betos uh, ruptures her Achilles. Liddy Williams comes back from the World Cup. I think the time frame they gave basically means she's out for the season. So huge signing. Uh, with Casey Murphy, who spent that year in France. All right, let's uh, take an ending to segment one. We'll come back. We'll get Ray's thoughts on the World Cup uh, that just ended in France. You are listening to episode 69 of the Equalizer podcast. Episode 69, segment two of the Equalizer podcast. Dan Law Letter with Ray Curran with a reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer podcast. The better ratings and better reviews you give to us, the more great content we can give to you. So please rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. Ray, I'm going to ask you to rate and review the (laughs) Women's World Cup, which I know you watched very closely. 
Um, yep. A bunch of us were over in France. You spent all your time in the United States. And I'll repeat what I said on the break uh, privately, which is that the U.S. could have lost all four of their groups, uh, sorry, of their knockout games, but it never felt like they were going to lose any of the four. No, I think that's accurate, too. I think, you know, obviously they start off with a 13 nothing win and it goes from there. But I think, you know, all the talk before was, all, you know, the world is catching up to the United States. And I'm sure that was motivation for them going in. I don't think they were second best in any of their games. I think, you know, give Spain a lot of credit for pushing them, you know, in the second round game. And obviously that, you know, with a break here or there, Spain could have made it different. And England was right with them. I think England is, you know, has a lot of room for improvement still. And I think they're the team to look for in the next four years to push the United States. And, but in this, this point, I think, you know, United us was the best team there and they won. What was the, I was in France for the last week. So what was the final week like, um, from the U S and when I got home, people that I didn't even know knew about soccer or knew that I was involved in soccer are asking me about it. Um, but what was it like quarterfinals, yeah. semifinals and finals back home? I mean, having been through it now a few times, I mean, you know, you know, I think you and I go all the way back to 99 and that that kind of thing. And you go to 2011 was the one where everybody wanted to talk about it. I don't quite think it reached that level here, but I think everybody was aware. And some of that could have been the times that the games were on. But I think, you know, everybody was aware when the games were on. I think um, in, you know, the final, you know, the U.S. didn't score until the second half, but they were never behind. They were never pushed the way they were in 2011 or, you know, or that matter, they obviously didn't win in 2011, but I mean, the way that those games went back and forth the whole time, too, and or in 2015, where, you know, they had some really tight calls there and ended up winning. Um, I thought in the final, the best thing that happened is that, or maybe not the best thing that happened to them, the worst thing that happened to the Netherlands in the final was that halftime came when it did, because the best stretch for the Netherlands was like minutes 35 to halftime. And they didn't quite get that momentum back after halftime and O'Hara. And I don't understand still how O'Hara comes back in that game after getting hit in the head like that, who knows how long she would have been allowed to stay in had that been earlier in the half. And that could have also been a problem, but barring that it never felt to me like the U S was going, maybe when England got the PK and they were going to tie it at two, two and they had been pushing a little bit, but even that the U S wasn't going to be behind. Right. And, and the same thing, I don't and, you know, obviously you go up to the penalty and it was, a you know, a, a you know, VAR penalty, which, you know, who knows it would have been given in any other tournament. But, it, you know, it was you know when you looked at it, you saw it on review and like, oh, they're going to give that one, which was kind of how it was. And that was that was a big story, too, from a soccer standpoint, is that the replays and, you know, you go back to the NWSL games and there's a couple of them like, oh, I'm probably glad they didn't have that. Um, yeah. You know, so and then yeah, I have Rose Lavelle with, with her standout moment, which is great to see because, I mean, you know, if you follow women's soccer, you know, you know who Rose Lavelle is and to see her do that in the big stage was great, too. But, yeah, I mean, there's only one. And I'm saying that, you know, they were clearly clearly going to win, but that doesn't mean that they were because, you know, soccer is like that. You never know when they're going to get a bad break, as they did in the Olympics, for instance, against Sweden. You know, one of those could have cropped up, but it didn't. And they what was also stood out to me is the depth that they had is that you just stick somebody like Kristen Presses. And, and, you know, we kind of know that as well. But, I mean, any one of those 23 players can play, as, you know, Allie Krieger pointed out a couple times. And she showed it because she got in the field and there she is. Yeah, I kind of feel, on one hand, I feel like your depth is only as good as the way you utilize it. And after the second game when Jill Ellis rotated the roster in, 
against Chile. I felt like she didn't necessarily utilize her depth as well as she could, but you're right. Kristen Press comes into the game for Megan Rapino. Not only does she play pretty well, but she scores the first goal of the game. And then Krieger, who was looked like she was done with the national team on April 1st, comes in for the second 40. I mean, she basically comes into the game to play defense in a 0-0 game in the World Cup final. And that's somebody yep. that we thought was done. I think she thought she was done on the national team three months earlier. Yeah. And I mean, and you can talk about, you know, Casey Short and whether who should have been there. But the bottom line is that you can't take the trophy away. I don't know what else they're supposed to do. They won the championship. So it seems like a moot point to try to argue tactically when they came home with the World Cup. Was the well, I've been saying that for years with, you know, Jill Ellis. And I've got my fair share of complaints about Jill Ellis. But at the end of the day, she's been carrying that 2015 World Cup trophy with her in her back pocket all this time. Actually got two of them. Um, more was it a bigger deal here that the U.S. was winning the World Cup, or that Rapino was sparring with the president and talking out about different issues, and Alex Morgan was sipping tea and things like that? Which one resonated <laughs> well, more? I think that actually helped a little because I mean, you know, if the, when if you remember when that came out, that came out I think before the quarterfinal game when yes. the first thing, even though it was a Rapino interview from a long time ago. So now the the pressure's on. I mean, if they had lost, then it would have been a bigger you know story too because they would have lost. But now that they won, you know, there's a lot of people that are now behind them for you know obvious reasons that may not have been otherwise to win. I mean, I mean, most people are going to be behind the United States national team. You would think that, although you never know these days. But um, you know, but obviously that that added a little bit to it because because you know they backed it up and kind of won after that. The Morgan T thing was kind of it seemed like some people were upset. There were the Canadians that were upset after the Thailand game, and I think you know some people in England were just looking for something to be upset about after that. I thought it was funny, so you know it is what it is. So we can't. And, and I think you know Alex Morgan, to her credit, handled herself well both in the moment and in the World Cup and off the field as well. And I think she probably doesn't get enough credit for that with, with the amount of pressure that's on her, how how well she handles herself. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You know, I've been big on how well Rapino has handled herself, playing really well and sitting at the podium and just answering every question that came at her. You know, Morgan doesn't do it with quite the same uh, ease or, you know, relaxed methods, I guess, as Rapino does, but she does do it pretty well. I just, you know, I, you know, she, I thought it was pretty obvious that the T thing was geared toward England and then they, you know, yeah. Tried to say nothing's obvious, Dan. So. There's nothing's obvious, you know. Yeah, I guess. As Jill Ellis said, people only know one tenth of the things that we do, which is probably 100 percent true. Yeah. And like I said, if you and if you said if she won, I mean, there's some things I would have done differently. I'm not going to lie, but you know, if you win the championship, that's kind of as far as you can go, isn't it? At that point, I mean, you know. Yeah, and you know what I thought was ironic about the Sweden game in 2016 is we have been we spent three years harping on that game about how the U.S. can't break down a bunker. And, you know, Jill Ellis made all these changes because of that Sweden game. But had they won in PKs and then gone on to win the gold medal or even maybe lost a tough final to Germany for the gold, the narrative out of that game would have been how tough the U.S. was and how Sweden had them stymied. But the U.S. quote unquote found a way. And the difference is only because Sweden won the PK shootout, which pretty random. So I, I just, you know, I've. Well Something I've been thinking about for a while. Yeah, and then the best team doesn't always win, and that's what I'm trying to point out. I think is that the United States, to me, clearly had the best team watching these games, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they, you know, something could have happened to them where they gave up a couple goals. It was interesting today, by the way, to see that you know Abby Dahlkepper did a pretty good job all the way through the World Cup, and then you watched Sam Kerr just torture today 
once for one of those Chicago goals, which is, you know, it happens, obviously. Sam Kerr is one of the best strikers in the world, but if not the best. But, you know, just that, that kind of thing did not show up at the World Cup. And for whatever reason, the United States defense that I was worried about him a few months ago wasn't really exposed the way that I thought it might be by some of these teams at the World Cup. Well, and the, the weird thing about that is that I thought Sauerbrunn had the worst tournament she's ever had. And if I told you March 1st, Sauerbrunn will have her worst World Cup or Olympics ever, and Lindsey Horan won't play in the game that decides where the U.S. finishes in the World Cup. Not that many people are going to say, oh, well, obviously they won again. Right. I mean, that's and that's why you never know what's going to happen. That's why, you know, and that's where you can give credit to Ellis as, as you have. And you can just look at their depth and say that they have so many players that, you know, it doesn't really matter who they stick in there. And then, but again, it, all that being said, how, how much better can you do than win the tournament? They won the tournament. What else are they supposed to do? It's, you know, sometimes we set the bar so high that they nobody can reach it. Who are you most disappointed by? I guess the options are France and England and Canada, Germany. A lot yeah, of, I, I think there's a lot of disappointment to go around at this World it, Cup. I mean, you could say France, but they ran into, they're always going to run into the United States in the quarterfinals. And I think that's just more of a brutal draw than anything. I feel bad for France because they were at home. And because, you know, how many times has this happened to him? You can go through the list. I think I thought Japan would be better just because, you know, we heard about their U-20s coming up a few years ago and maybe they're a little bit away. But they didn't, you know, they had their moments where they looked pretty good, but they didn't really impress me game to game. And you look at a team that has been to two straight World Cup finals. Maybe I set a hard bar, high bar for them as well. But in, and then Germany, again, you know, they go out in the quarterfinals to Sweden. It looked like they might be able to sneak through. But they never really got it together over this this whole cycle, and that's a team, Germany, who was, you know, obviously won some World Cups and has been on par with the United States, but it doesn't seem like that's the case, at least talking in July of 2019. But when you talk about France, and yeah, they ran into the U.S., and I get it, you get to a knockout game, somebody has to move on, somebody doesn't move on, but wasn't that a little bit too typical of the way they usually play? They went behind less than five minutes in, it took them forever to find Renard on set pieces. When they finally did, they scored, but it just never felt like they, like I felt like England was in that game. I never felt like, I mean, Fran, they were obviously in the game. They had to make a nice save when there was two to one and there was some momentum in the U.S. was sitting and playing with a five back and all that stuff, but it just always felt like France would find a way to lose that game to me. Yeah, I mean, I was more worried at France 2-1 than England 2-1. I mean, other than the obvious penalty, um, but, you know, France was coming on there at the end and they were really had everything going and, and, you know, you can make the argument where the heck was that the first 80 minutes, but you know, that's the way it goes, I guess. But I thought, you know, overall, even watching the whole tournament, I just thought the U S was better, you know, but you know, who, who knows? I mean, on a, on a given day, something happened. You think on one of these given days, France is going to win one of these, but we keep asking for it and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So that's the way it goes, I guess. And give credit to the United States. They came right out, right off the bat and Rapino scores the goal. And then, you know, once you're behind that first goal is so huge. You know, and that's, and you know, the rest is history. Yeah, and that's why I thought England had a big chance, because England was not playing. I thought both teams started slow. U.S. scored. England scored almost right away after that, and then they made some pretty good adjustments. After halftime, they were down again at that point. But, um, yeah, U.S. never trailed in the World Cup. Uh, for, it was for also the first time ever that they got through the group stage without allowing a goal at the World Cup. Um, or undefeated without allowing a goal at the World Cup. Um, I thought the best game I saw, and I didn't see them all, but Australia-Norway in their knockout match in the round of 16. Um, you know, Australia's dis the disappointment level with Australia has been building for a while. 
Norway seems ready to get back at it, especially if they can figure out how to get Ada Hegerberg back in there. Um, Norway feels like a team that could be a factor in the next four years. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, it's it's not the same, you know, world as when they dominated just their sheer population, you know, and they, they kind of caught the wave early for women's soccer too. So it's going to be tough, but they're right there. I mean, you know, England, you know, blew them out, but at the same time, you know, that was just kind of one of those things where England, you know, Again, just like the United States did to France, they took advantage of their early opportunities and the rest is history. But certainly they seem like they're close. And even Sweden obviously beat Germany. And so it seemed it was a good tournament for the Scandinavian countries. And it'll be interesting to see they have the European championships as well, to see how those teams do in that and then come forward. And then, you know, obviously you know, the Olympics are next year, but it was tough to qualify this year. And so you got Great Britain, Netherlands and Sweden, and that's it, which is a little bit disappointing as a fan because, you know, no France, no Italy, who had a great tournament too, no Norway. You know, so no Germany, you know, Germany, you know, so and nothing against people from the rest of the world. But, I, you know, a discussion for another day. But how the heck is it's not 16 teams in the women's Olympics? It's ridiculous. But yeah, I don't have as big an issue as others with the with the way they qualify for the Olympics, because UEFA is so dedicated to real World Cup qualifying, real Euro qualifying. Right. And Germany and France, they all knew what it took to get in. But you're right. Once we get to that tournament and there's no Germany, no France. Germany is the second time in three that Germany won't play in the Olympics. Remember when Japan beat them in 2011? Yep. That knocked them out of the Olympics for 2012. Gold yep. medal in 16. Now they won't participate in 20. But yeah, it won't be as good. It's kind of like March Madness where you love your early upsets, but then sometimes you get to the back end of the tournament. And it's like, well, I wish the, you know some of these better teams were still in here. Yeah, in the bracket. I mean, obviously, it would have been the perfect world would have had a United States-France final, but it's you know, not the way it worked. And the Netherlands are worthy. I mean, European champions, and they were right there, you know. So, I mean, it's, they're, they're worthy, and, and all the credit to them going forward, too. And we'll have to see. There's a lot of teams, again, but there's no one that really looks like they're going to catch the United States immediately. There's, there's a lot more depth than there was, I think, but there's nobody that, you know, and unfortunately, all European teams are talking about. The African teams didn't really show much and, you know, and give them credit because all the stuff that they have to deal with behind the scenes you know, as it is, and I know Cameroon had that unfortunate game with England, which, you know, it, it it is what it is. I don't think Gary Neville needed to go off there at the end of the game, and but that was kind of a slight controversy that came up. But you know, but hopefully we'll see those teams, and we'll see at least one of them at the Olympics. So hopefully they'll have a better showing there. All right, that's two segments in the book. We'll be back with a couple of questions and answers, and maybe talk about the health of the NWSL with Ray Curran. I'm Dan Lawletta. This is the Equalizer Podcast. Third and final segment of the Equalizer podcast, and it's time for the sports reference stat of the week. And let's go to Chicago, where the Red Stars, I told you earlier that they drew a franchise record. The final number at SeatGeek Stadium tonight was 17,388, and that beats the franchise record set on May 9th, 2015 of 16,017. And the thing about that franchise record is that they had some double headers at what was then Toyota Park with the Chicago Fire. And the 16,017 was the tops of those double headers. So without the help of the Chicago Fire, the Red Stars on their own draw 17,388. The high number um, before this, which for standalone games, was also in Toyota Park. That was against the Dash in 2015, was 5,000. 623 that was also a world cup year It was about two months after the final but congratulations to the red stars 17,000 
388 on Sunday against North Carolina Courage, and a win, and a Sam Kerr game winner, and that beats all their doubleheaders that they have done yeah. with the Chicago Fire. So that's a sports reference stat of the week. And for all the great statistical information, more and more each day, go to fbref.com, part of the sports reference uh, family that is fbref.com. And we thank uh, Sports Reference for the continued support of the podcast. Ray, before we get to one question we have in the queue and a little NWSL off the field chatter, uh, we talked off air about Brazil, uh, who had a decent tournament, we all thought. Um, Marta played okay and has come back to the NWSL playing better than she has probably in a year and a half. But as you said, where do they go from here? And it's tough because that the the Marta window, I would imagine, is closed. Maybe not locked, but closed. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and you know, obviously Christian too. So we'll see where you know where they go from there. Well, to she's see. gonna play forever. Yeah, it could. They, they might. And Marta, it wouldn't shock me if they were. You know, especially the way Marta's played the last two weeks. You know, but you know, we'll have to see. And that's and Marta made get the impassioned speech after they eliminated. It's up to the next generation. It's so tough in South America in general. We see Argentina's fighting with their federation already. You know, just to find games. And I think Brazil, to their credit, tried. And you know, they lost a lot of those games, almost all of them, actually. But at least they tried to get some games. So hopefully they'll do the same thing going forward. But for these teams with nothing in between these major tournaments, it's just so tough. They have been in negotiations, apparently, or discussions with Pia Sundog to be their new coach. And if you think about the U.S. and Sweden teams that Pia coached and the Brazil roster... And just the entire history of Brazilian soccer going back to the Pele days when the men won three out of four World Cups in the middle of the 20th century. That is a fascinating match, but it is hard to think that that, (laughs) those two philosophies could mesh together and make Brazil a contender. I think she'll try it. I mean, I mean... uh... You know, it's been a while since she was with the United States. It's not like it was, you know, whatever. So I, I, I think they could do worse. I mean, I think it's worth a shot going forward to see. But again, we're not going to know. I mean, you know, they're going to have the Olympics. And then, you know, after that, we'll, we'll see, you know. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if she does take over now. We'll give her to the Olympics and see leading up to that what she does. And then it's three long years until the next World Cup. And that's a long time for, for any anybody. So we'll see how it goes. All right, one question on the EQZ pod, hashtag from Paul Klee. Adriana French has played uh, 12 matches between club and country in the last 12 months, five in the last nine months. Is this good for French? She was very inconsistent versus Utah, good saves, but also savable goals allowed in that early turnover to A-Rod. Um, I'll go first and you can chime in. It's not great for her. Um, I think you could do worse when you're not playing than to be training with the national team during the World Cup. I agree it wasn't her best game. But I don't know what you're going to do. And I wouldn't be surprised if she's the next number one keeper for the U.S. And I think it's fair to call her the best keeper in the NWSL over the last two years. So, uh, yeah, I agree. She didn't have the best game against Utah. I said earlier that I have my concerns about the Thorns' defense. But uh, I don't think Adriana French not getting enough minutes in the last 12 months. I think that's the least of the problems we have coming out of the World Cup and for the Thorns. I mean, it's an issue. I'm sure it was talked about with them, and I'm sure, you know, it probably, you know, you can probably say that that maybe hurt her a little bit, you know, Friday, but I think that it's a one-time thing. I think she'll be fine after that. And I think, you know, she's, it's a big stretch for her coming up because, I mean, you figure Alyssa Nair is still 
the starter next year, but it looks like French could maybe move her way up to number two on the depth chart from what we're seeing, you know, at that point. And then, you know, it's a big four years. You know how long Nair had to wait to be the starter. I'm sure French has her eyes on 2023 at this point, but she's got a lot of competition. You know, as I said, even Casey Murphy who's come on this year too. There's a long time between now and then. So, but I'm jumping way ahead at that point. And remember the Olympics is smaller roster. So it's two keepers plus an alternate. So, so that's a tough call right there, whether who they take for the second one. Yeah, and I think Jane. I, I'm not. I don't think Jane Campbell right now is good enough to be on the national team. But I think she'll get a chance to be on the national team. So you got Campbell and Murphy and Nair. You know, there's a lot of call for Bledsoe to get in the mix. I'm not sure that's uh, feasible either. Though again, I think she should get a shot. Right. I, I, if you ask me right now, I think Franch is the number two. Harris or Campbell is the alternate in Tokyo next summer. Yeah, I think they're leaning toward Harris. I mean, I'm leaning toward French at this point, but this, I don't have anything to go off except what, I, what I'm what i thinking. So, you know, I don't know what they're thinking. So, you know, that's up to And there's another year until then anyway, so we'll have to see. You know, it's a tough it, – when there's so few people for one spot like that, even for any team, you know, even for a lot of the NWSL teams, it's obviously a tough position because you only have to start one of them at a time. And so there's only a limited amount. And that's one position that expansion would help tremendously is goalkeeper because then you get more spots. Yeah, well, look at poor Abby Smith in Utah. Can't even get off the bench behind Nicole Barnhart. And, I mean, that's the right call. Barnhart's been tremendous. Even that Sinclair goal the other day, I, I don't think that was on Barnhart. I think Sinclair just hit about as good a shot as you can hit from where she hit it. But Abby yeah. Smith can't get off the bench. And there's and it's not like you, there's a team where you say, oh, well, trade her to Team X because keepers are good. Right, and, and poor Abby Smith it was in Boston where the team doesn't exist anymore. And so that's, yeah. you know. One of the, that's where the poor Abby Smith starts, unfortunately, you know, but it is, you know, hopefully she'll get her shot at some point because she was really good in Boston, you know, for a decent stretch of time there on a bad team. So hopefully she'll get a shot somewhere and hopefully, you know, I don't I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but expansion and where we're headed with that. We haven't heard much, but this might be the time where people might start sticking their nose out and trying to see what they can do. Well, I mean, might as well go at it right now because we've been on nine. Now this is two years on nine teams uh you would think the world cup would be something that would get more expansion groups to come out of the woodwork we know there's one in hartford word is the league only a calgary group just came out and said it's long term but we want an nwsl team but word is that the league only wants to go with mls affiliated teams i think that's a huge mistake not that it's a mistake to have a team owned by an mls team that wants to be in but, you know, the Dash and Pride aren't exactly tearing it up. Uh, yeah, the, go ahead. The odd thing about that Hartford situation is that they have a USL team with a brand-new stadium that just opened a couple weeks ago. In fact, the lights aren't even finished yet. And it's a perfect size for what would be an NWSL. I think it's like six, 7,000 people. And then they're building to build another stadium for the NWSL team. So that didn't make any sense to me why they would need two stadiums when you just built one. You know, for but you know, what do I know? I find it hard to believe that LAFC is not the next expansion team with me at him as a as a part owner in 2020. But I've been saying that for a while, and it hasn't come true yet. So we'll see. Well, that's what I was going to say. My only concern about that is we've been saying that forever now, or forever as it gets with LAFC. Why hasn't there been an announcement at this point? Because we've yet <laughs> to have an. Ex- you know, you look at Major League Soccer. You know, Nashville's been getting ready for two years to come in the league. Miami. Yeah. It's been getting ready for, it seems like, 20 years, but we've yet to <laughs> have... They're going to get there eventually. Though, yeah, one, like they final. will play. But, you know, we've yet to have an NWSL expansion team where you knew about it 
at the end of the previous season. So what, if LAFC really wants in, they've got the resources, why hasn't it happened yet? That's my main concern there. No, it's my main concern as well. I mean, do you put it down to some the disorganization of the league? Is it possible? I mean, with the stuff that we've seen, some of the stuff, it looks like they're starting to sort a little bit out with some of the stuff. I mean, you know, but there's still a long way to go on that front too. And maybe that's what the holdup is. That's I think that's part of me hopes that so that when they finally put it together that, you know, that's what we'll have. I don't know, you know, where else I've heard Atlanta a couple of times, but I know you and I know, cause we've been around a while. They've tried that one before. Although, you know, it's a new era, obviously, in Atlanta with the MLS success of the MLS team. But that doesn't necessarily translate to NWSL, as we found out as well. It doesn't. But who outside that group and that area thought that Atlanta in MLS would be even close to this? No. And that's what everybody's trying to hit. I think you're trying to hit the one. You know, Portland's an obvious one. But I think to another one like that. And Utah's done well. And I think that may be where the MLS is coming, that you have, you know, going forward, you had James Harden this week, who's now a part owner of of the dash, whether he knows it or not is probably another yeah. question, but the, the, uh, but you know, but those names are out there. At least they're affiliated. Now, you know, what, what comes next? That's why LAFC is an obvious one from the outside, but I don't know what's going on internally, but you've got a lot of other markets on there. You got sky blue sitting there. What the heck are you going to do with them next year? And that's another story for a discuss, a discussion as well is that do they join up with NYCFC who doesn't have a stadium at some point or a team like that? Or do they just kind of, sit where they are or even Philadelphia at that point, you know, I, I've heard that as well. But again, these are all rumors that we've heard, you know, years on end at this point. Well, they had the Red Bull deal and they turned it down, which was led by part of the ownership group. That is, I don't know if he's still around or not, Thomas Hofstetter, but he's not the front man anymore at this point. The thing is about Sky Blue and NYCFC is that NYCFC is so committed to New York City. Yes. And Sky Blue is so committed to New Jersey yeah. Could that be a mix? Like, could NYCFC run their women's team out of New Jersey or would Sky Blue have to kind of, I mean, I guess it wouldn't matter if you're, you know, if you're locking on with NYCFC, but because they, they can't play in Yankee Stadium, no. even if they wanted to, because the dates are, well, are tight as it is. I think the hope was that they were going to have a stadium by now and they don't. And well, yeah. you know, they're hurting as well. They don't have anywhere to put, you know, a team. So I think that's the hold up with that. So there's a lot of mitigating factors you know, but but like you said, after the World Cup, this would be the time to look out for stuff to, you know, read the tea leaves and see who's going to do what. And it could be any of them. San Jose is another one for, you know, that has a history of women's soccer and has an MLS team. And we've heard rumblings here, there about it as well. So, you know, there's still teams out there that, that may, you know, take a shot. Well, what do we make of the general health of the league, though? We lost Lifetime in A&E. Now ESPN just jumped in and they've aired a couple of games now and they'll air the playoffs in the final. Budweiser came in and they've got naming rights to the final, though oddly we don't know what those naming rights are going to amount to, just that they have them. Uh, there's going to be a most valuable supporter, but we don't have any details about that. The news dropped at 2 a.m. the morning of the final. And then somebody asked Becky Sauerbrunn about it in the mix zone after the World Cup and it was 100% clear that she had not heard about it to that point so yeah you know maybe it was too tight on the game and they didn't want to give dump news on the players um you know we're riding this wave now Seventeen thousand in chicago big crowd in washington you know uh, rain fc almost said it not quite uh, didn't quite get there rain fc are gonna sell out and i think set a franchise record for their next home game coming up this weekend but we had this in 2015 and uh and the bubble popped pretty quickly yeah, I mean, I think there's there, you can look at the glass as half empty or half full, depending on you know where you are. I think 
historically, I think the league's in a pretty good place compared to what it was. There was an article on Deadspin, you know, uh, Diana Moskovitz is the author who wrote it about she the last women's soccer professional game she went to was a Magic Jack game, I think, in 2011 and then went to a Thorns game uh, the other night or, or maybe it was the last one back or it was the Friday night game, actually, that she went to. And so the differences between those are obviously stark. But you look at where we should be now and you look at what you things like you talked about with the differences you know, with with Becky Sabra not knowing about this, a major sponsorship for the league and stuff like that, I think there's a long way to go. So I think it depends on where you are. Grant Wall has also come out and talked about that there might not be a league next year, which, you know, doesn't seem probable to me either. So I think we're in the middle. I think right now this is a big time for them to see where they go for there, or from here. Well, as we say probably every week, hopefully uh, we're heading in the right direction. Ray, really appreciate you hopping on. I'm coming off the bench, and uh, let's get you on uh, sooner than we did uh, since the last time. I'm just glad to see the field. All right, that's uh, going to wrap. That's for Ray Curran. I'm Dan Lawletta. Uh, this has been Episode 69 of the Equalizer Podcast.